I don't know how you find time to do all of these things amongst all the other things that go on in people's lives. I know. Yeah, it's challenging. You, you make time for what you're passionate for, right? So. Exactly. That's right. Greetings, listeners. This is Drew Duglin, of course, back with the podcast. And we are kicking off 2019 with something very special. I'm joined today by Dr. Arnab Chatterjee, who is the VP of Medicinal Chemistry at Caliber, the biotechnology division of Scripps Research. He reveals how their groundbreaking work is accelerating drug discovery with huge implications for medicine and public health. Let's join Arnab as he reflects on his academic career and his early work with Scripps president Pete Schultz at the drug company Novartis, also called GNF. So I became an er interested in organic chemistry, went to undergraduate and continued doing synthetic organic methodology chemistry as essentially work study uh, mm. to help pay for pay for my tuition. And then I proceeded to do my, my academic training at Caltech. Eventually, I really had an interest in doing drug discovery. Right. And uh, through my interactions, Peter Durbin was actually the chair of my thesis committee at Caltech. Uh, both Bob Grubbs, who is my PhD advisor, and, and Peter mentioned that uh, the Peter Schultz was setting up this new institute, essentially trying to do drug discovery in a academic-like setting okay. uh, at GNF. And so when I was a third-year graduate student, I started looking for jobs in the pharmaceutical industry initially. But given my background of where I did my graduate training, many people typically would do a postdoc or they would go and work at a chemical company or a polymer company. Mm -hmm. So I actually interviewed at a pretty wide, diverse set. Um, but I really landed on drug discovery. So talked to Pete, and uh, Pete suggested that there would be this opportunity to work in a relatively unique environment doing drug discovery, high-risk drug discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and I jumped at the chance. And, and probably the single most important decision of my, of my career was to do something very different than going to big pharma or big biotech. And at GNF, I learned a ton. I ended up working on traditional drug discovery programs. I was working on non-traditional drug discovery programs and uh, really got a chance to learn about how to build drug discovery groups out of small groups of people and be able to do really impactful science. And uh, then when the opportunity came to come and do that in an even more broad environment like Caliber, working yeah. closely with faculty at Scripps at the time, Pete being amongst them, then really made me think, well, what happens if I work at a place that just doesn't think about a large pharmaceutical company's drug discovery pipeline, but rather a very large breadth of, of drug discovery, which GNF had at a very for a very long period of time, but at times was limited by what disease areas does Novartis actually want to uh, have approved products in versus an academic setting, which is work in a variety of different disease areas with the idea that there is likely at least a partner or two on the commercial side for each of those diseases rather than having to pick one commercial partner. I guess that must be one of the main advantages of having such a closely linked academic research institute with a biotechnology arm. Right. This whole idea of actually working very closely and intimately scientist to scientist, peer to peer, uh, trying to address the aspects of a program that are directly linked to a potential clinical application and potential commercial product is something that, through my undergraduate career and especially, noticed that 
having those links together is really quite important and can't always happen within a traditional academic environment where you're just looking for the next for another PI down the hall who mm-hmm. she or he may have some ca- some capability that fits really nicely with yours. Now, I think that's a really nice scenario, but the actuality that you can find a pharmacologist and a toxicologist and a formulation scientist <laughs> and a chemist and a cell biologist who all want to spend some of the time in her or his lab towards one problem is kind of challenging and rare. Uh, No one university or nonprofit can do that. And so I think the ability to work with people who who are interested in working on those sort of problems, but not just across one or two areas, but across many areas, is what I think is really unique. Yeah. And how does that close relationship accelerate the drug discovery process in practice? Like, are you constantly interacting with the faculty and and keeping your your eyes open for what's coming down. Very very much so, very much so. And I think a lot of it also has to do with faculty at Scripps understanding what the capabilities are and and having a very open conversation about potential applications down the road without the idea that, oh, I need to potentially, you know, is this this person's in a different organization, she or he may have different motivations, et cetera. I think, you know, the examples that have worked well so far uh, have been with multiple faculty members at Scripps. Uh, most of my interactions have been in the chemistry department and in immunology, but I think, you know, experimental medicine has also had some really nice interactions. Is that in all of those areas, people have a simple question and have a conversation and say, is this applicable to something that that could be of interest in translational science? And and I think there's a lot of those sort of informal conversations, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But if if there's an application of some unique technology and unique approach at Scripps uh, within the academic departments with something that's going on in translational science, I think is, is very powerful. And what is your um, overall role here at Caliber? So my overall role is working very closely with folks at Caliber and folks at Scripps to really move forward the small molecule drug discovery pipeline. That being everything that is working on very small molecules all the way through up to essentially the sort of molecules that we start thinking about different delivery uh, profiles other than through through oral administration. And so, you know, there's several senior people here, not just in the chemistry group, but also amongst all the other areas, toxicology, pharmacology, screening, informatics, um, et cetera. And I think the parts that have worked really well have been the interactions where there's some sort of technical person that's not available on the caliber end of things, where there may be someone available at the scripts end. And, and Reframe is one such example where, where Andrew Sue has really been a critical element in the informatics aspect of that program because we needed that sort of you know uh, expertise and just don't have it within the 110 people that are here at Caliber. And again, it's also been along the mission of Scripps, which is to help train postdocs, people early in their career who are interested in doing translational science. What I've seen from collaborations I've had with other academic folks outside of Scripps has been that, generally speaking, building up those capabilities is really challenging, even at institutions that have significant funding, have significant access to talent, both in terms of faculty as well as students, is that building up that critical mass is actually quite challenging. And so I think people have now, not only within the Scripps community see that, but I think also outside of the Scripps community. One of the main initiatives at Calibre that Arnav mentioned is the Reframe project, a large-scale effort to repurpose already existing, but typically unused drugs for the treatment of new diseases. 
They have put together an open access library of over 12,000 compounds, which is really shifting the paradigm of drug discovery and opening the door to new biological questions. Fundamentally, the idea of taking drugs that have been dosed in humans for one disease to be applied to another disease in and of itself is not a novel concept, in fact. But the question is, how could you actually do this in, a system, in an unbiased manner where you could put a whole collection of molecules together and make those available to biologists who are interested in screening in a particular disease? In many ways, it's kind of what we, we call the democratization of biology, which is that this idea of not needing a chemist per se to provide compounds to you and make things for you and reagents for you to be able to do things. So um, I think the key element for me has been centered around this idea of if we were to take all the compounds that have been safely dosed in humans and put them together and put them in a way such that we could make them amenable and available to all folks doing interesting biology to ask the question really is something that I think came about from discussions at the Gates Foundation, where the Gates Foundation approached it from a, we need a compound collection that is not too large, which is a manageable size, because in many cases we're doing assays in parts of the world with investigators who don't either have access to very high-end equipment, mm -hmm. or in areas where the biology simply does not allow you to be able to transfer assays and transfer reagents and cells and whatnot. And also to be able to do it in a manner such that one does not have to go and acquire those collections under very sometimes uh, restrictive terms from the companies that actually develop these drugs, which I think is a key challenge because yeah. as you can imagine, and rightfully so, a biopharmaceutical organization that has invested a lot of money into a particular compound, making those compounds freely available to any investigator working in a particular space, in this case, infectious diseases of the developing world and low resource environments, is something that is very challenging. But those two ideas really came together. And there's some examples, I think, that we had around you know, the inception of Caliber, where we took some very interesting known drugs and been able to apply them in new settings, um, including itraconazole is one example, but a few others as well that made us think, well, maybe we should systematically put this compound collection together. And so it was a tremendous effort, many different people involved in this. And then we've taken, a, 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 I'd say, a significant leap of faith in terms of the resources required and actually gone in and synthesized the molecules you can commercially buy. And in many cases, they're very interesting molecules, which are just simply old compounds. They were compounds that have fallen out of favor for one reason or another. Uh, but in and of itself, they still have a significant amount of literature that demonstrates safety in some cases, in many cases, lack of efficacy that stopped them from progressing towards registered drugs. And so a perfect opportunity for, for that. And we, we've pulled out some molecules that have been developed by small biotechs, by large pharmaceutical companies, um, et cetera, that, that kind of span this whole space. If you take a, a very global and a very mm -hmm. open view to, you know, molecule from the 1960s, which may not have a, a tremendous amount of documentation around it, was actually safely dosed. And could we actually apply it to a new disease? And so um, that's the genesis of, of the Reframe collection. And I think one of the real powerful aspects of it is that it's open access, both in terms of accessing the compounds, uh, freely available to investigators, data is mm. openly shared. Um, so it's this general idea that, you know, unbiased screening can allow people to, to really get, understand new biology of old compounds.
So it seems very altruistic that it's kind of open access. And what was the conversation there? And, and how was that pitched to uh, different biotechs who you wanted the, you know, intellectual property? Right. For? So I'd say the intellectual property question around what happens when we find a hit is very much dependent on the specific compound. Okay. And there are examples now that we have where we've been able to engage the group that actually owns the intellectual property and say, you know, we found a really interesting hit mm-hmm. for your compound. You know, at least you've not published on this. This, this may not be open information. Is there an opportunity to collaborate? I think that's actually been probably where it's been exceptionally exciting. And, and clofazamine is, is one example where Novartis has actually helped us. I'd say going in with data and saying, hey, we've actually found something interesting is is very much the approach of, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. <laughs> right. And asking for permission sometimes in this area is actually very challenging. Um, so we actually have taken the approach that it's better to generate that data and then engage the requisite uh, commercial group. And I'd say, generally speaking, we've been, um, it's been very favorable. So I think that's the start of a collaboration. Yeah, I was just thinking with the, the collaborations, I'm assuming now a lot of these companies have seen in practice how effective this has been, particularly with the infectious disease examples. Has this opened the door now to yes. new partnerships? I actually think, you know, infectious disease has turned out to be one area where, you know, there has been very hot or cold, like neuroscience in, in some ways, very hot or cold in terms of, you know, the, the interest in doing actually novel drug development. I'd say where we have actually seen the greatest impact is, is some of these cases where it's a very old molecule. Aranafin is such an example that we are applying in South Africa and in TB right now, mm-hmm. which is an old drug. It's fallen out of favor uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the efficacy that you can get from it versus more recent approaches, I'd say. But there was actually commercially available drug product that is safe to dose in humans that was found and made available to us that we could then use at a trial site in South Africa. So I think that is where there's a real powerful impact because you're taking essentially drugs that many people have essentially forgotten about. But in fact, those drugs may have a dramatic impact both in terms of efficacy and in terms of cost in lower resource environments. You use these drugs, obviously, where there's a a big need for in the case of infectious disease. Does it also depend on how well you can screen those drugs in in terms of the assay being used? That was something that I was wondering. Absolutely. So so what we have done is we because we've made a large enough of the library and we really are, 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 are consuming very, very small volumes of it, we have taken the approach that rather than just saying, well, you know, there's really only five assays available in TB, or there's really maybe only five assays in, available in malaria. Let's just read those 10 assays and call it a day. In fact, we are taking a very broad approach by saying, you know, there may be five general approaches to screening malaria or TB, mm-hmm. but in fact, there's subtle differences in the assays themselves, be it the cells, be it incubation times, be it, you know, what strains are you looking at? And so we've taken a very broad approach that there may be 30, 40, 50 screens that you'd want to run against right. a particular pathogen to truly understand if there's a starting point for doing, being able to do drug repurposing. And in many cases, it may not be the right drug itself, but it gives you a huge starting point that okay. allows you to give you a significant heads up in terms of, well, what do we need to address? What is What do we know about this molecule that is probably not appropriate? Is it potency? Is it safety? Is it whatnot? And be able to very quickly optimize 
Right, and you're doing this in a really high throughput fashion, and we, we can get to the technology uh, in a second. So you're mainly looking at cells, and then after that, going up into, say, like tissue, whole tissues, and then... So animal. we're looking at cells. We've looked also in biochemical assays, but I think where we've seen the most power has been in cellular assays, particularly with the known drug collection, where at least you have some sense of what particular pathways the drug may be affecting that causes its pharmacology in humans. One of the real powers of having a 12,000 compound collection is that almost any academic lab that we've had discussions with about running screens initially sometimes starts off with the conversation of being, we didn't even realize that you could make this compound collection available in this manner for us to be able to screen. Yeah, I was thinking there must be faculty at Scripps that are developing these uh, tissue or cell-based approaches and must say, oh, wow, you know, we could give these to you and and you could screen. Exactly. So so that's actually been where we've had, and and there's been several examples of known drug screens where I've collaborated. One one such example is with Matt Disney uh, in his lab in the chemistry department in in Florida. And so with the access to a compound collection of this size – and with the ability to do small-scale miniaturized experiments, it doesn't have to be an assay that's ready to screen against a million compounds. Yeah. And that bar lowers the activation barrier required for an academic group. Cool. Now, with the actual screening at Caliber, you've got these amazing robotic arms that are doing a lot of the automated uh, processes. So how has that been incorporated into these assays and um, whose idea was it to, to get these, yeah, get these so, over? So, 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 you know, much of what we did with kind of the robotics work that was initially done at GNF um, while, while Pete was there and has been something we've incorporated here at Caliber has really been this idea of, you know, if we wanted to run screens against very large compound collection, how can we do that without having, you know, a lot of human involvement in it? So, so that's been really powerful there. I'd say what's been really powerful for the reframe collection per se is that we have used technologies that essentially like acoustic dispense and being able to provide very, very tiny nanoliters of volume of drug and Mm. plates that are already pre-spotted. It makes it a lot easier for someone to run an assay. Uh, And and I'd say more in that sort of manner to be able to get compound plates to them effectively, you know, in many ways lowering our cost of being able to do uh, sending the compound collection all over the world to many, many different collaborators. So that's kind of where robotics had a particular impact on the reframe collection. But robotics in general, in terms of drug screening, is something that I think now has become much more common, um, at least within the biopharma and within large academic centers has become yeah. uh, very commonplace. But I think it's something that allows, allows us to provide two examples. One is where uh, there's an academic group that cannot screen at that scale could actually gain access, but also this idea of, well, what happens if there's an assay that is only available if we send off a compound collection and send off a small plate reader uh, too. And we've mm-hmm. done that with, in the malaria space where simply getting those patient samples and getting those would never be able to happen unless you sent a small compound collection um, yeah. to a remote lab and tested there. Yeah. yeah, the scale and the precision must be a complete game changer. And I wonder what you thought the future would be like of uh, AI and robotics and drug discovery. I mean, it's very exciting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very exciting. I think, you know, say over the last 
four to five months, I've really started to see some really interesting results in the machine learning and AI space that I think is going to be another tool that we use in drug discovery. I think at the end, drug discovery is, is so multiplexed that it, expecting any one particular technology uh, to be able to address is going to be very challenging. Rather, I think the real question is going to be for the disease and the therapeutic target that people are looking at, or in a cellular assay, trying to figure out what the what the right technology is. So I, I think that I think coupling those mm-hmm. all of those things together with I'd say more traditional things like high throughput screening is going to right. be valuable. But I think as we know from from what we know about the chemical druggable chemical space is that we constantly need new types of molecules and we need new approaches to be able to come up with leads, but then also interrogate the biology behind those compounds. Cool. So we still need the human thought and we're still going to have jobs for a while. I think so. I think so. I, my, cons- my concern is, is rather not that there's not going to be enough jobs. It's rather training the, the people who can do those jobs. Cool. Well, for the last five minutes, maybe we can leave the science and get on to more important things, which is uh, your interests outside the lab. And I remember before we were talking about comic books and superheroes. Yes. And I believe you're a bit of a comic book now. I am. I am. I, I, it was particularly when I was a child, but I think, uh, you know, certainly I've uh, enjoyed interactions, understanding what, what are the sort of superpowers that people have, at least in stories, <laughs> and how best we can try to recapitulate that. Uh, with what we could do ourselves, it's been a it's been a great interest of mine, and uh, I, I have been very pleased to see how mainstream it is now compared yeah. to what it was like. You know, thirty five. I'm going to date myself thirty five years ago. I think you had you said you had some signed Stanley. Yes, comics, we did. But... Yes, back before all these people became very very famous. In fact, uh, have had a chance to interact with some phenomenal people writing books in the nineteen eighties and nineteen early nineteen nineties, yeah. and it's been uh, it's been amazing. Unfortunately, with Stanley's passing, uh, I think there are now many many other people who've been inspired to be in that area. And uh, I, I'd say my holiday reading list don't always just have uh, self help books; they also have. <laughs> few old comic books that, that, were, Very good. That, that were my entire allowance. So Sorry. who was your favorite superhero as a kid and has that changed? In adulthood. Yes, it has changed. My favorite in childhood is actually a very funny character and actually not as popular in the U.S. uh, called Gru the Wanderer. Very funny, uh, made a lot of mistakes, but yet somehow came out at the end to be a true superhero. Uh, And I think over time, uh, I've probably gotten to appreciate more and more characters uh, within the Avengers, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think uh, Captain America probably is my favorite now. Is it your favorite movie, too? It is, yes, yes. I've actually seen a lot of the movies, and I think that was actually one of my real favorites as well. Yeah. I think Watchmen was my favorite movie. It's Uh, dark and twisted like me. (laughs) No, but, you know, Doctor Strange, which is funny because now now being in the line of work I'm in, you know, that was also, I was like, wow, why didn't I like Doctor Strange (laughs) more as a child? You could put that on your door, (laughs) Doctor Strange. (laughs) Exactly, so... Yeah, I didn't quite realize how, how much more uh, connected I would be given my current line. Definitely. Well, I think we'll just wrap up the podcast with my favorite question, which is if you could give someone your one golden piece of wisdom uh, in the realm of work, career progression, life, health, self-improvement, what do you think it would be and why? You know, I would say surround yourself with people who you truly look up to. I think what has happened over my career has been, in many ways, trying to figure out who the people are who I could learn a tremendous amount from, spend time with them, Mm -hmm. uh, be willing to put yourself in situations where you are very not knowledgeable about something, and surround yourself by people who will not only do that for themselves, but want to do it for the people that they care about. 
I love that from Arnab, embracing discomfort to become a better version of yourself. I'd like to thank my guest today for the discussion and I'll be putting links to these initiatives we mentioned in the show notes. I've also included the link for a really cool video showing these automated robots in action. So be sure to check that out as well. Remember to leave us that five-star review and to hit subscribe. We've got more great stuff in the works so you don't want to miss out. Thank you folks for listening and we'll speak soon. Take care.